As Michael mentioned, three weeks from now, we're going to start going uh, through the scriptures one book at a time, one book each week. So I'll take one week and cover Genesis. The very next week, I'm going to cover Exodus, and we're going to do that. But we've got three more weeks, uh, including today, to finish out our discussion of Ruth. Now, let me just give you a little bit of a review. Uh, We spent, and if you're wondering, can I do one message on Genesis and move on? I'm really going to do that, even though it took us 28 weeks of messages and almost an entire year to get through the book of Judges. And I just want to remind you of the context of Judges. Judges is God being faithful to his people, faithful to preserve them, but also faithful to discipline them um, in the midst of a world that was falling apart. Um, Alan Ross summarizes Judges this way, if you get mixed up with the world, the way the world thinks, there's nothing but disaster ahead for you. And that's what Israel learned. When they began to live like the world, it was just disaster. It's not idolatry per se, it's just beginning to think the world around you thinks with yourself at the center of everything you do. The, the, The summary of the book of Judges was every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And, and we're living in a world that way uh, today. Um, I tried to apply the book of Judges kind of from this framework. Um, for them, the Israelites were looking like the Canaanites. Sodom and Gomorrah was eclipsed by Israel. What was going on in Israel was worse than what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. For us, God's people look just like the world. And for, for many ways, Las Vegas is eclipsed by Sunday morning. What you see going on um, in Sin City <laughs> is what's going on in churches today. And, and that was a very bleak, dark picture. You can see even the slides are dark. Um, and Ruth is a nice, bright response to that. Um, and I want to show you um, that Ruth is really designed to give us an example of what it looks like to live in the hostile world like judges, because the beginning of Ruth tells us that in the time when the judges ruled, this story takes place. Um, In fact, Eugene Merrill talks about the Bethlehem trilogy. The last two stories in the book of Judges um, have Bethlehem at the center of them, and then Ruth begins in Bethlehem. Um, just really highlighting that. So this is, this is really how you live faithful in a world like Judges when not only is the world falling apart, but God's people are buying into the system of the world. Um, and we are now uh, partway through the book. We're uh, in chapter 3. And I want to just show you a connection that's really fascinating. Um, what, what has happened is Naomi and Elimelech have left Bethlehem and gone to Moab with their two sons. While they were there, Elimelech, the father, and his two sons, um, they died after the sons had married two Moabite women. Naomi hears that God has blessed back in Bethlehem and that there are crops being harvested. And so she decides she's going back. She tells Ruth and Orpah to stay. Orpah does. Ruth comes back with her, pledging to follow her and to follow her God. They have come back, and what has happened is there is a relative of theirs who takes notice of Ruth and begins to take care of her. Um, And there's some interactions that take place in chapter 2 between um, Ruth and this man named Boaz. In chapter 3, it gets more intense as they're moving towards marriage. And at one point, um, Boaz says this to Ruth, "'And now, my daughter, do not fear.'" I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen 
know that you, know that you are a worthy or a, a valiant woman. You're, you're a woman, and, and the phrase in Hebrew, um, an eset halyal, is, is an is a important catchword because it is, it is the highest way you can refer to a woman. Uh, she's worthy, she's valiant, she's living um, a, a virtuous, virtuoso of a life. And he says, all the women of the town know this is true of you. And think about it, this is a small town. This is a town maybe of 20, 30 families. Everybody knows everybody's business. And he said, all the people know that you're this kind of a woman. Now, the phrase, a worthy woman, is used somewhere else really strategically in Scripture. I want to show it to you. In Proverbs, that word right there, Proverbs chapter 31, verse number 10, a passage we usually know um, as um, the virtuous woman or a worthy wife. It says, a valiant woman, and it's the same phrase, set hayel, a worthy woman who can find her worth is far beyond rubies. Now, a number of years ago when I was preaching through Proverbs, and I've done this a few times, I've tried to set up what all of this is, but I, I want you to see that this, this phrase is really connected to Ruth, and it's connected in a really specific way. Um, Bob Chisholm says this, in the Hebrew text, Ruth, the book of Ruth, appears right after Proverbs, probably because Ruth epitomizes the worthy wife described in the conclusion to Proverbs. Note this, it said Hael, this worthy wife, in Ruth 3.11 and Proverbs 31. So basically what that means is, in the Hebrew text, and I've got one right here, this is my text of the Hebrew Bible in, in Hebrew, okay? This is it. The, the books in here are arranged slightly differently. Here's what the books look like and how they are arranged. It starts with our same first five, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. But then what follows is their section called the prophets, okay? Now, that is followed by a section called the writings. Um, in Hebrew, it's the Kethuvim. It's the writings, okay? I want you to focus on that group right there, and we're going to examine something. As you look at that section of groups, look at the arrangement of the words there. Proverbs is followed by Ruth. So here's what that means. At the very end of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 31, last chapter, the last section, it's begins by saying, who can find this worthy woman? And then it gives all of her characteristics. In the Hebrew text, this one I have right here, um, the very next book is Ruth. It's because the rabbis recognize the epitome of Proverbs chapter 31, lived out, is seen in the life of Ruth. She is the example of what it means to live this kind of life. Now, I've done this before. I want to make it very clear. That is not because Ruth and Proverbs 31 is just about how women should live. That is not what's going on here. Let me show you a couple things. Lindsay uh, Wilson says this. In the opening chapters of Proverbs, wisdom is personified as a woman. Wisdom is calling and saying, listen to me. And this acrostic poem here in Proverbs chapter 31 shows an example of wisdom lived out in practice. At the end of the book, what you have is, is a poem with the ABCs in Hebrew that says this is what it looks, out, looks like to live in wisdom. The passage certainly presents a pattern for women, yes, 
who want to develop a life of wisdom. But since it is essentially about wisdom, its lessons are, bo- are for both men and women to develop. This is not just a passage that husbands or pastors should use to beat up women. This is the culmination of the book of Proverbs to say, this is how everyone should live. Now, here's what it basically says. The passage teaches that the fear of the Lord will inspire people to be faithful stewards of the time and talents that God has given, that wisdom is productive and beneficial for others, requiring great industry in life's endeavors, that wisdom is best taught and lived in the home, indeed the success of the home demands wisdom, and that wisdom is balanced living, giving attention to domestic responsibilities, as well as business enterprises and charitable service. (laughs) That's what this woman does in Proverbs chapter 31. Um, She lives based on the fear of the Lord, a productive life in her home, in her workplace, and serving other people. It is the summary of the entire book of Proverbs, but it is not just for women. It's for women and for men, and it's arranged as an acrostic poem. So I've encouraged people to do this numerous times over the years, and I've got some resources out at the Connection Center. You can find them online um, that give you just the text of Proverbs 31, 10 through 31 because it's an alphabetical poem that in Hebrew is easy to memorize, because each line starts with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet, because it should be foundational to life. You should be able to memorize it. I'm encouraging you to make Proverbs 31, 10 to 31, a part of your life, and maybe even take the translation and take the sheet and just say, okay, yeah, here's what each verse says a productive life looks like. Now, what I'm telling you is that kind of life is epitomized by men and women who live with, with wisdom, but also it is epitomized by Boaz and Ruth in this passage. The ABCs of wisdom kind of outlined in Proverbs 31 look like this. It gives this introductory praise. She's a wonderful woman. She's rare. Who can find someone like this? Then it talks about her work in home, her work in the community, and then it cl- concludes with her praise. Again, Lindsay Wilson says, as with wisdom in the book as a whole, she establishes herself on the sure foundation of the fear of the Lord. She builds on this with productive activity that benefits her, her family, and the community. That's what a wise life looks like, and it is exactly what we see being played out in the book of Ruth. Bruce Waltke says this, this valiant wife in Proverbs 31, and Ruth, I would tell you, and Boaz, I would tell you, have been canonized as a role model for all Israel for all time. Wise daughters aspire to be like her, wise men seek to marry her, and all wise people aim to incarnate the wisdom she embodies, each in his own sphere of activity. Lindsay Wilson says it this way, this passage is a rich way to end the book of Proverbs on a high note while it depicts wisdom exemplified in the life of a woman. It's not a lesson only for women, but for men as well. Um, this passage in Proverbs is really significant. It's the culmination of what it looks like to live the wise life for men and women both. And in the Hebrew text, that passage at the end of Proverbs is followed immediately with the book of Ruth because Ruth is giving us the example in day-to-day life in a very non-spiritual book. There's no priest, there's no temple, there's no sacrifices that take place in this book. It's a, it's a book of everyday life and what it looks like when someone is living the life of wisdom, the life that the Lord blessed, and it's rare, and it's being lived out in the midst of a hostile, antagonistic world. Now, for Ruth, I've got a few more resources out there for you. One is a summary um, of the life of Boaz, and then a fascinating little piece by John Piper on um, 
the switchbacks in life. When it seems like things are going well, sometimes they turn around and go the opposite direction, and we'll see that in the passage today. In fact, what we see in the passage today that we began looking at last week is that God often uses risky plans with honorable people to accomplish his purpose. And these risky plans don't always just provide a smooth path ahead. Um, what is happening in this passage is that Naomi is, is creating a risky plan for Ruth, her, his daughter-in-law, and the plan is risky, but not all that risky because she knows she can trust Boaz as a man of integrity. And Ruth recognizes she can trust um, uh, Naomi with this plan. So they're having to trust people around them. I mean, and, and isn't that the way the normal Christian life of wisdom works? You're wanting to know what God wants you to do, and you live by the principles that are clear, and then you surround yourself with wise people that you can trust, and you follow their advice. Now, what happens in this passage is, is really fascinating. Here's what, what goes on. It, it, Naomi says, is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were harvesting, and he paid attention to you, gave you some extra stuff? Um, see, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak. Let him know you're, not, you're no longer mourning. Let him know you're ready to be married. And go down to the threshing floor, but don't make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Now, Naomi's pushing the limits, okay? And, and I think um, um, Dan Block is going to capture something right here in the middle of this quote that I want you to think about maybe is going on. We don't know for sure. But Dan Block says this, In light of the closing verse of chapter 2, that is, hey, he's the kinsman redeemer. One may speculate that Naomi hoped Boaz would take the initiative and establish a relationship with Ruth that was more personal than that of a native landowner and an alien scavenger, and that would eventually lead to marriage. Perhaps he was being sensitive toward Ruth as a widow, she's still mourning, not wishing to impose himself on her until she was emotionally healed and ready to contemplate marriage. Obviously, he was not making the moves. So as Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi took it upon herself to overcome his inertia. I want you to listen to what he's saying. He's being a typical man. <laughs> he's not taking the initiative. And some wise woman with a bigger view of what's going on in the world and God's working, a wise woman has to kind of push him along. This is the nature of the real-life world in which we live. Boaz is a really good man, but it looks like he's either hanging back to not offend her, or maybe he's just not taking the initiative. You know, I can imagine him uh, back home practicing. Uh, uh, Ruth, would you, uh, would, you, would you like to go out on a, on a date with me? Um, pra practicing again and again. And, and just kind of couldn't get his nerve up. And so Naomi finally says, listen, Ruth. Put on your clothes that let him know you're ready to get married and go down to the threshing floor. And what she does is she describes marriage as rest. We talked about this last week. Um, and, and what I want to do is, is give you a little bit more on marriage as rest. There are a couple of resources, again, that are out at the Connection Center, available online. Some, um, a revised list of marriage books that I highly recommend. Um, I've edited this just this past week, added uh, one book, took another book off of that. But if you're, if you're wanting to invest in your marriage, there's a, a list of some great books that you could use out there. And there's also a summary of the newest book that I read on marriage by Paul David Tripp. Um, it's a summary. The whole, whole book is summarized on a front and back sheet. Um, 
but the stories in the book that he tells wrapped around these six commitments that healthy marriages make um, are, are really good. Now, over the years, I'm not an expert. I don't usually dole out advice, but I've been married 36 years and done a lot of premarital counseling, done a lot of marital counseling. Um, I'm going to review a few things that I've learned over the years. Um, first of all, I've, I've really learned that a healthy marriage begins when you seek to understand before being understood. Both of you should fight over who's working hardest to understand the other person. That's almost never what a fight about, is about. A fight is almost always about you demanding that someone understand you. Stop doing that and really work hard to understand the other person. And then take responsibility for your own actions. Um, don't catastrophize. Don't make this the worst. And by the way, I'm preaching to the choir. I'm preaching to me here. Don't catastrophize. You know, when, when I mess up, my, my typical thing is I'm the worst husband ever. I'm not sure why you even married to me, Dawn. Um, don't catastrophize. That doesn't help anything. Deal with what's before you. By the way, there are so many people smiling at me and nudging one another right now. It's just distracting even. So I'm going to keep going on. Um, there are some tools that you can use to help in marriage, and you invest in a lot of tools for all kinds of things. I'm going to highlight three of them um, that are tools that are often used in business. We use them at, at, at the church. Um, I would help you use these. Two of them cost some money. One of them is absolutely free. Um, the Working Genius is the newest tool that we've used, and there's a whole Working Genius podcast that talks about um, how you utilize this in your family by how everyone is designed and how they, how they approach the world. Um, one that I've been using for 40 years, the Taylor Johnson Temperament Analysis, um, it is so old that I, I'm having trouble buying sheets for it anymore. It's like getting parts for a Ford Pinto or something. It's just, it's old, old, but it's free. And then there's another one called Standout. These tools would really help you in your marriage. I want to encourage you to try to, try to invest in something. If you need some help with it, um, let, let me know. I can get you a discount on taking some of these, uh, some of these things. Um, I'm going to be real practical for a few more moments here. Um, Paul David Tripp's book, the one that I've read this past week, um, he has six really good principles that really orient um, a, a, a real good marriage. He says this, you should make these commitments. We will give ourselves to a regular lifestyle of confession and forgiveness. Isn't that an interesting way to start? <laughs> You'll humble yourself en enough to say, I don't always get it right, and I'll admit it. And because I don't get it right, I'll always forgive. We'll make growth and change our daily agenda. You're, you'll always be saying, how can this help us get better? You'll never be satisfied. We'll seek to work together to build a sturdy bond of trust. I'll be trustworthy and I'll trust. We will commit to building a relationship of love. We're going we're gonna to learn how to love each other through the different stages and seasons of our life. We will deal with our differences with appreciation and grace. I talked about this a little bit last week with the buckets. You've, you've got some different buckets you can put things in. And when there's difference, appreciate them and be gracious about them. And then finally, we'll work to protect our marriage because Satan would love to destroy marriages all over the world. Now, I think these are great. I think um, if you read his book on marriage, the stories that he wraps around all these are fascinating. The practical examples he gives, it's really worth the investment to, to get that book. I don't have that many principles, but I thought, oh, he's got some principles. Let me come up with, with some. He's got six. I'm a little more spiritual, so I have seven, okay? 
So, here are mine. Marriage is not designed to make you happy, but to make you holy. Marriage is the primary way that God will sharpen you and reveal your sin. By the way, I thought I was a very nice guy until I got married. And then I realized how unbelievably selfish I am. Uh, Marriage is not there to make you happy, but to make you holy. And if you'll be holy, it'll be happy. You and your spouse are broken vessels, and you'll never be able to fill the other cup. Only God can do that. If you're looking at your spouse to fulfill all of your um, needs, you're going to be horribly disappointed for the rest of your life. But if you will allow God to fill you up and let that overflow to your spouse, there'll be joy and harmony in your marriage. Um, This is one way more theoretical, and I've taught about this before, but I need to throw it in there. In marriage, a man should represent the strength of God and a woman the beauty of God. When this goes wrong, it looks either like abuse or silence on the part of a man and manipulation or invisibility on the part of a woman. Um, If you want more on that, I preached a, a whole message on it years ago. Here's a few more. Humility is essential in marriage because you're a sinner married to another sinner. By the way, if you haven't recognized that, you're still living in the honeymoon, or you've realized that, just go ahead and admit it. Just go ahead and admit you're a sinner married to a sinner. A man must learn to care before he fixes, and a woman must not expect a man to read her mind in the moment, but she should expect him to learn more and more about her for the rest of his life. Men, your wife wants you to care before you fix, and if you care before you fix, most of the time you don't have to fix. By the way, all the women are shaking their head at me. Now, here's the tricky part. 12% of the time, you still have to fix, and I don't know how to give you any advice on figuring that one out. Women, your husbands cannot read your mind. Now, they should grow in knowing you and predicting you, and that's why I would say the last thing is true. Curiosity is your greatest tool in marriage, both husbands and wives. Curiosity is your greatest tool. That's why some of these uh, tools that I mentioned before are really helpful, because they they allow you to be curious and go, why do you think that way? I've known you've always thought that way, and I wanted to talk to you about it. I never felt safe that I could. Now it's on a piece of paper, so let's talk about it finally. Why do you think that way? Now, I've got seven. Here's my last one. Every marriage is unique, so ignore all of that I just said. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your spouse more than you love yourself. Um, (laughs) All my advice is what I've learned. I'd tell you to ignore all the rest of that. Let's jump into Ruth. She's a great example. Both both Boaz and Ruth are a wonderful example of what it means to live practically in marriage, um, daily life, without all of the spiritual stuff. These are people who are trying to find food, trying to find a wife, trying to find happiness and and hope in the midst of a crazy world. And, And... Naomi sends Ruth down to the threshing floor and says, hey, let him know you're available for marriage. And what we're going to see is that that God helps the needy through the gracious provision of other people. Um, God is going to use Naomi's suggestion, um, Ruth's cooperation, Boaz's response to meet the needs of an entire family. Ruth is going to trust God's plan for gracious provision, even though it's a risky plan, because she's not, 
She trusts Boaz, but she's not 100% confident how he's going to respond to all this. But Boaz is going to respond to the request and generously provide, even though it's surprising to him. Now, what happens, we talked last week, is a little risque. They, they end up in the middle of the night with some men who have had something to drink on a threshing floor, and she goes down and takes his cover and puts it over him. Now, she's dressed up to let him know I'm no longer mourning, and what she's doing is saying, I'd like you to marry me. That's the custom. She takes his cover, uh, probably his cloak, and covers herself, and it startles him. And when he's startled by all this, he says, who are you? What are you doing? And she says, listen, I'd like for you to be the guy that marries me. And nothing goes on. There's, there's nothing uh, promiscuous, nothing crazy happens on the threshing floor, although it is risky. Last week, I talked a lot about um, sexual purity. Folks, I want to encourage all of you, every one of you, I don't care how old you are, um, listen to this podcast um, on dealing with pornography. Um, I'll, I'll put a link uh, on the website. You can ask me how to get to it. If you just go to the Table Podcast DTS, Dallas Theological Seminary, um, it is a very recent one. The statistics and the way that they present the material will get your attention. If you're not thinking that you have to deal with this today. Here's our passage. Um, this is Boaz talking to Ruth. After Ruth has shown up and said, I'm no longer mourning, I'd like you to marry me. He said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You've made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after the younger men. Um, Boaz is a generation older than Ruth. I don't know exactly what that means. We're probably looking at 25 and 45. Um, because Boaz is the relative of Naomi's husband. So Boaz is an older man, never been married, and Ruth is a younger woman. And so he says, the fact that you're pursuing me and asking me to be your redeemer is, is a clear evidence of your faithfulness, your loyalty, your kindness to your family, because you didn't go after these younger men that you could have gone after. The word for younger men is men in their prime of their life. You didn't go after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen, and we talked about this before, know that you're a worthy woman. You're an Aset Hayel. You're a woman like the Proverbs 31 woman. You're that kind of a woman. Now, the same phrase has been used of Ruth, of Boaz earlier. Um, he is a Gibor Hayel. He is a, a valiant warrior. Um, Catherine Sakefeld says, Boaz is praising Ruth for acts done in relationship, essential acts of support and care that only she was in, only she was in a position to accomplish, acts that frequently go beyond the basic call of duty. This is what chesed is. Chesed is caring for somebody, but it's not just doing what's required. It's genuine care and going beyond the call of duty. Dan Block says, the narrator is careful to present Ruth as the antithesis of the stereotypical Moabitess, a loose woman, is what a Moabitess would have been viewed as. She is not that. She's the antithesis of that. In fact, she is deliberately presented throughout, the, throughout as portraying the Israelite standard of chesed. Um, 
She is the epitome of what it means to be faithful and to be loyal. And she's loyal to Ruth. She's loyal to the standards of the Israelites. George George Schwab says this, Boaz assures Ruth that all will be well. The reason he gives is that the leaders in Bethlehem recognize her worth. Ruth and Boaz trust each other's character in this risky encounter. They both maintain their righteousness and so demonstrate that the godly can live above their culture. I want you to hear that. Ruth is designed in the Bible to follow judges where the world is falling apart and God's people are falling apart to say the godly can live above their culture. Never again does this passage, this book, refer to her as a Moabite. She's just Ruth. She's living above her her Moabite culture, and she's living above the culture of the time of the judges. Now, there's going to be a twist, and this is where um, John Piper's switchback comes in. Dan Block says, Ruth's heart must have skipped more than once as she listened to Boaz's warm response to her overtures. I'll do everything you're asking. But a second, but now, in verse 12, signals a disturbing development, and a disclosure that follows would have caused her heart to stop. Um, I'm going to read the passage, and, and you'll see what Boaz does is he says, I'm going to do everything you asked. Oh, she's just delighted. Oh, gosh, she's going to do it. Uh, it's going to happen. <laughs> but then he says, but now, here's the passage. And now it is true that I am the Redeemer. But now, there is a Redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he, does not, if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down here until the morning. Boaz is such a man of integrity that he knows there's someone else who has a nearer claim and a nearer right to say, hey, I'll take the opportunity to redeem this family, take care of them, make sure they're taken care of. Now, that's going to all play itself out in chapter 4. We'll get there next week. But I want to remind you that both Boaz and Ruth are living with Hesed, which is going beyond the call of duty. God's people don't just figure out what's the bare minimum, what's the least I can get by with. God's people say, how can I use all the resources God has given me to bless people around me? Um, I see that because the specific terms of leveret marriage, which I talked about here uh, in this passage, they don't specifically apply here. Neither do the specific terms of the kinsman redeemer. Here's what that means. Ruth could marry any of the young men and not violate anything. Boaz could marry any Israelite woman and not violate anything. But both Ruth and Boaz are going above and beyond in order to provide for and meet the needs of others. Boaz providing for and meeting the needs of Naomi and Ruth. And Ruth going above and beyond to make sure that Naomi is taken care of and her family is redeemed. So here's what happens. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. So she got up really early in the morning. If you'll remember... Out of God's providence, Boaz is is laid down at the end of the pile of grain. And he says, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. I don't want anyone um, besmirking your reputation. He's still taking care of her. He's still protecting her. I want you to get up 
and, and I need you to get out of here before anybody notices you're here. But before you go, he said, bring the garment you're wearing, um, this cloak you've put on to let me know you're no longer mourning. Bring it over here. I need you to use it as a sack. <laughs> so she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. He gave her a bunch of this, the barley that they had been threshing because he's providing for her. Do you see how he's not just saying, okay, I'll marry you. I'm going to marry you, but I'm sending you home with more then, then you can uh, barely carry here. We're not exactly sure what measurement it is. It just says six of barley. You don't know if it's six ephah or six pints. You, don't, you have no idea. Um, it's like using the metric system for you and I. I could tell you something in metric, and you go, I don't know what that is. That's, it's kind of what's going on here. Boaz protects Ruth's reputation and provides for the family. She, he's being chesed. He's going above and beyond to take care of others around him using his resources to make sure that happens. Now, the scene's going to come to a close when um, Ruth goes back home. And when Ruth goes back home, she's going to report to Naomi, but she's also walking in with a big sack of, of barley. Um, and they're going to find that resting in the providence of God is now going to cause you to have to wait. God's going to take care of things, but you have to wait. By the way, isn't that true? Think for a moment, not about slides, not about what I'm saying. Think about that point. When you rest in the providence of God, he doesn't always immediately provide. He makes you wait. And you usually have to wait this much longer than you think you can. Resting in the providence of God, which is what faithful people do. It's what people who understand that God has been chesed, faithfully loyal to them, and they are chesed, faithfully loyal to uh, him, and chesed, faithfully loyal to others. It's people who live that way, they have to wait. Ruth is going to have to wait and, and, and see what happens. Naomi's going to have to wait and, and see if this really plays itself out because Boaz says, I'll do it, but there's somebody else who's first in line. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did it fare for you, my daughter? That's how the ESV translates it. Literally, what she says is, who are you? Now, I mean, I want you to think about this. Ruth comes back home after Naomi has sent her to this um, risky proposal now she comes back home, and she says, um, well, who are you, my daughter? First of all, she knows who she is. Um, what she's asking is really, are you Mrs. Boaz? <laughs> is this good thing going to happen? Who, who are you? Are you just Ruth, any, or are you now in this relationship? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave for me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. By the way, do you remember at the beginning of the book, and everything's starting to reverse now, at the beginning of the book, Ruth, Ruth and Naomi come back to Bethlehem for Moab, and Ruth says, I, I, am, I went away full, now I'm empty. Now she's not empty-handed anymore. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest but we'll settle the matter today. And that's what's going to happen in chapter 4. The matter's going to be settled by a good man 
working with a good woman, in the regular events of everyday life, where they trust in the providence of God, they love him and trust him, they trust honorable people around them, and then they wait for God to work it all out. Folks, that's how you should live your life. That's the message of how you live in a hostile world when things are going to hell in a handbasket all around you. Um, not only in the world, but in the church. Kenway says, interestingly, the actions of Naomi and Boaz in this chapter become answers to each of their prayers on Ruth's behalf. Here's what he's saying. There are prayers in this book that needs will be met, and God uses the person praying to meet the need. So often God will do that. He also says this, God's blessings are often realized through audacious acts of love, that's Boaz, that inspire others to similar behavior. Boaz and Ruth, because they love, they, they take on these risky plans that are audacious. They're crazy. They're, they're risky. What, what all could have happened here? I would say it this way. Waiting to find rest in the providence of God is often risky and sometimes surprising. Risky for Naomi and Ruth and surprising for Boaz because Boaz is realizing, oh, I'm the one who's going to be the redeemer. So what are some next steps? Here's a couple things. Um, I'm going to encourage you to memorize a verse, okay? Would you memorize 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8 as a next step this week? Um, It's about the sexual purity thing. It says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. In the midst of a world that says it's all okay, you can do this. You can abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in those things, as we have told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The Holy Spirit has been given to you to convict you, to encourage you, to empower you, to live above the standards of the world. Secondly, would you take one major step toward improving your marriage? Don't be satisfied. That's, that's one of the worst things you can do, is be satisfied where you are. I've been married 36 years. I have a set of books this long um, on my shelf on marriage, and I read another one this past week. Now, part of that is because I need it. I mean, good grief. I'm just, I'm not learning all the stuff I need to learn. I got to get better at this. Don't be satisfied. Take a step. And then finally, would you make Proverbs 31, 10 to 31, a regular part of your lifestyle evangelism, evaluation? Proverbs 31, 10 to 31, for both men and women, is the epitome of how a wise person lives their life Boaz and Ruth show you what that looks like in day-to-day life, but the principles are embedded in Proverbs 31, 10 to 31. Go over this yourself. Go over it with your spouse. Go over it with your kids so that we can be people who live above the fray and find ourselves in the middle of God's story playing a strategic role. 